Our Father, on this 61st anniversary of the church, we come before you and thank you for your mercies that we have enjoyed over all these years, for your great faithfulness to us, for your steadfast love, for revealing more and more of yourself to us, to thrilling us with yourself, inspiring us, equipping us to live for you, for the pleasure of communing with you and with one another. So, so many gifts, too many to count, too many to express. Help us to return thankfulness and the praise you're so worthy of this morning, this day, this evening, as we are mindful of these rich mercies. In Jesus' name, amen. This being the 61st anniversary of the church, there are a couple hymns that we try to include in each of these services. And the first is, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, number 30. Let's stand and worship God.
Please be seated. And while our God has been faithful to us over these decades, uh, we know that we have been faithless all too often. So let's go to our knees now and confess our sins, first privately and then together as a body. And now with hope that God hears the contrite together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. There are those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter Listen to these wonderful words from Lamentations, the kind of God that is there, the kind of God that has brought us into relationship with him. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. It's for us to hope and to trust that this God is there. And this merciful God has just heard our prayer of contrition and has restored us to himself again. Now, you'll notice that um, this is the second hymn that we sing every um, anniversary Sunday, and it's the one where the choir begins to sing first, and then I will um, raise my hands to uh, motion you to stand, and uh, when they're finished singing the piece you have printed there in the bulletin, we'll stand to sing hymn 365, and then they will continue after we're done singing the hymn, but you remain standing on your feet, because when they're done with their second piece after the hymn, then we'll join with them in singing the doxology. So, uh, I'll, I'll motion you when it's appropriate for us to join in singing.
continue worshiping by giving our tithes and offerings. As we stand to sing the offertory, let's be sure we give our very selves along with our offerings.
Now, as we noticed last time, the material following verse 10 of chapter 18 detailed the allotment of the seven tribes whose allotment had not yet been assigned. Now, as we have been making our way through Joshua, we've been thinking most of the time about the pattern of salvation and of the Christian's way of faith and life during his or her pilgrimage to heaven. Canaan, the promised land, we have said, are in, or is an enacted symbol or prophecy, what is called a type in biblical hermeneutics, a type of heaven. Hermeneutics is a long word that simply means the principles of biblical interpretation. This is not a stretch, as you know, the Bible in many different ways and in many different places uses the promised land or Canaan as an image of the believer's destination, heaven. Thinking about the lessons of the book for the life of faith, we've spoken of such things as the nature of salvation, the gift of God, the necessity of faith in the Lord and in his word, the importance of obedience being the product or the fruit of that faith, of presuming, our presuming, on the faithfulness of God to his promises, of the lifelong battle with sin, of the importance of giving thanks to God, and, and so on. This morning, however, we take a turn away from that subject to something else, a subject about which the Bible also has a great deal to say. Now, you'll notice as we proceed that the cities of refuge, the subject of chapter 20, and the Levitical cities, the subject of chapter 21, overlap. The cities of refuge were all Levitical cities, a subset of the larger class. There were 48 Levitical cities, of which six were cities of refuge. Both types of cities were provided for in the law of Moses, and the cities of refuge have already been mentioned or described in some uh, greater detail, detail in Exodus 21 and Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, the word the ESV translates manslayer can refer to those who kill with premeditation, what we would call a murderer, but also to those who kill accidentally. In those days, there was no police force. There were no jails or prisons. What was provided for was a system of law enforcement that did not make use of government police power. The apprehending and punishment of a murderer was the responsibility of the relative of the victim, someone who would care most to see that justice was done. Here he is called the avenger of blood. Much, of course, remains unsaid. How the crime was discovered, how the identity of the perpetrator was determined, how the arrest was made, how the trial was conducted, how the verdict was reached, how the execution was carried out. But again, as with all the regulations of the law, look for the real interest enshrined in those regulations and put the best 
construction, not the worst on the procedure. The point here was to reach a just outcome in which the guilty were properly punished, but the innocent were protected and eventually acquitted. The law envisions two opposite extremes, just what we find in human life today. A cold-blooded murderer who is apprehended, tried, convicted, and executed for his crime on the one hand, and on the other, a relative seeking vengeance for the death of a loved one even though the death was accidental or at least unpremeditated. The example used in the law in Deuteronomy 19 is of a man chopping wood in the forest with another man. The one man takes a great swing with his axe. The axe head flies off. It hits the other man in the head, killing him instantly. A pure accident, unintended, unimagined. Clearly, it's possible, however, that the death occurred not as the result of an accident, nor even the result of premeditated murder, but in a fight or a brawl that broke out spontaneously in the midst of an argument. The man who did the killing, in other words, may be guilty of what we would today call manslaughter, but not a premeditated murder. And the law, already making careful distinctions between the two crimes, assigned different punishments to them. It took into account, and very carefully, not only the nature of the crime, but the motivations of the one who committed it. Verse 4. He shall flee to one of these cities, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, and explain his case to the elders of the city. Then they shall take him into the city, and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. The process is stated very generally again. But what it envisions is judges holding what today we call a preliminary hearing to determine whether the man should be allowed to remain under the protection of the city of refuge. This is not the trial. That's going to come later, as we will read. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. However well-intended a system of justice executed by family members might be, it was subject to abuse, (coughs) as is any any system of criminal justice, certainly our own. And the city of refuge was a means established to limit those abuses. In the ancient Near East today, still, blood feuds are a common fact of life. The law demanded that the death of an Israelite be answered with justice, pure and simple. The land would be contaminated by the execution of a killer if he did not deserve to be executed, as it would be contaminated by the murder that went unpunished. What is clear is that this law of asylum was designed to protect the innocent, not the guilty. The rights of the avenger were not abrogated by the provision of cities of refuge. Indeed, if the man were declared guilty at law, the avenger then became, in effect, the agent of the state, its executioner. But a person who sought refuge in the public judgment of the community was to be tried, and if he was found innocent, he could live in one of the cities of refuge, there to remain beyond the reach of the avenger of blood. He could not... The avenger of blood could not exact private vengeance. 
he was obliged to follow the law. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment. That's the trial. Until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. Cannot help but think, perhaps you thought of this yourself, that the death of the high priest marking the end of the man's exile, even the man who had committed Uh, who had in fact killed another innocently, accidentally, represents an uncanny association with the death of Jesus Christ, the high priest by whom the sins of vast multitudes are atoned for and by whose exile or our exile, um, by which our exile comes to an end. Um, But you see, even accidental death was taken very seriously in Israel. So they, <coughs> they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Now the six cities are listed, three west of the Jordan, three east of the river. The three cities are in each case located in the north and the middle and the south of the country. No place in the land of Israel was more than a day's journey from any one of these cities. Um, They were very easy to get to, an important property of a city of refuge. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. In other words, until he had had his day in court. Now, our Father in heaven, this is again not one of those passages very likely to be preached nowadays. Uh, But we know it is important for us. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for our instruction and for our correction, for our challenge. Give us, O God, the blessing and benefit of this passage of your word. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Culture has been defined in a variety of ways, particularly recently, as culture has become a subject of concentrated study in the social sciences. A good ready-to-hand definition of culture is a socially conveyed pattern of beliefs and behavior shaped, taught, and sustained by the institutions arts, cuisine, fashion, education and theories of education, and the other products of a particular people's thought and work. We speak nowadays of American culture, or of popular culture, or high culture, or low culture, and now even of a particular company's corporate culture. We may be hard-pressed to know precisely how to define the term sweeping in its meaning as it is, but we know generally what we mean by it. Culture refers to the way 
of people think and behave, and particularly in ways that make them distinct as a group. For example, there are certainly ways in which contemporary American culture is distinct from other cultures of the world. It is, in world history, almost uniquely individualistic. It's always been more individualistic than other cultures. De Tocqueville noticed that uh, very early on in American history. But recent developments, feminism, the collapse of the American family in particular, have made it dramatically more individualistic. Social patterns of very various kinds reveal how natural, really unthinking, it has become for Americans to think of themselves without regard to their connections with others. Cohabitation rather than marriage. There may well be more single adults per capita in America today than in any other culture in the past history of the world. Remarkable. The way married women are now encouraged to think of themselves apart from their marital status or their motherhood. The way marriage and children are either invisible in American entertainment or caricatured and so on. All of these are markers of a sort of a raging individualism. Human life defined by oneself and not in relationship to others. People forget that the motto of the 60s counterculture that was then mainstreamed as American culture was do your own thing. Personal preference is now generally accepted as the arbiter of right and wrong, and that is individualism with a vengeance. American culture is uniquely materialistic as well, the inevitable result perhaps of our great wealth as a people. A new phenomenon, the American celebrity, illustrates this materialism dramatically. Celebrities are never people who are advancing the frontiers of knowledge or creating new cures for diseases or working at great sacrifice for the betterment of others. No, they are very attractive, relatively young people who dress in stylish clothes live in opulent homes, visit exotic locales, and are able to get tickets to the most sought-after events. The American celebrity is the creation of a marketing industry whose job it is to advertise the things that only a lot of money can buy. That these people so often have little other to commend themselves to the attention of anyone else is utterly beside the point. In a materialistic culture, the hero, the heroine, is the one who has the most. Whether money, girlfriends, boyfriends, looks, homes, cars, all the rest. When the rest of the world looks at us, for example, at the Kardashians, rolling in money and fame, because they have it all, as we say, their understandable response is only in America. That's the power of culture. But American young people take this entirely for granted. They can't get enough information about people like this. They want to know what they're doing next, who they're marrying, who they're dating, 
who they're divorcing. This is the power of culture. It creates normality for a particular community of human beings. We could go on and on talking about our culture. It's as sexually licentious as any culture in the world. It spends more time and money entertaining itself than any culture in the history of the world. To be sure, there are good things about American culture as well. Most of them perhaps leftovers from earlier times, but when someone elsewhere in the world thinks of American culture, watching American television as they do, you can hardly blame them for thinking that we Americans are materialistic, licentious, self-worshipping individualists who cannot seem to make a success out of the important relationships of our life. That's culture. It's entirely normal to us. But for the outsider looking in, it's surpassingly strange. Of course, there are many people within a population who don't share the thinking or the behavior of a population as a whole. Indeed, perhaps the majority of Americans would insist that they are not licentious or materialistic individualists. But sooner or later, a culture is formed by the people themselves, by what they by the way they behave, by what they find it natural to do, by the arts they support, by the social ideas they find credible. American materialism wouldn't survive if there weren't a lot of American materialists. Americans know better than to self-identify as materialists, the long and deep influence of the Christian faith not yet entirely spent in America today may give them a guilty conscience about their materialism, but as we say, actions speak louder than words. But inevitable as culture is, there must therefore be as well a Christian culture, which in the nature of the case would have to be a counter-culture. There must be a pattern of thought and behavior of attitudes and ideas, of tastes that are peculiar to Christians. And there has been such a culture throughout the ages. When the church moved out into the Greco-Roman world, it created a culture utterly distinct, entirely of its own, utterly unlike the culture of the times. Christians didn't expose their infants. They didn't countenance abortion. They forbade illicit sexual relationships. They required fidelity in marriage. They began manumitting their slaves in large numbers and giving to slaves and former slaves positions of authority in their churches. They refused to participate in the pagan rites of the Greco-Roman political and social world, but they paid their taxes. They obeyed the state to the extent that such obedience did not conflict with their loyalty to God. And they took it upon themselves to care for the poor, both Christian poor and non-Christian poor. Christian fellowship or brotherhood was likewise something the world had never really encountered before. But it was fundamental to the Christian culture, a unity based on theological conviction and a message of love. The Christians established institutions that were utterly unlike the institutions of the world around them. Institutions that reinforced this culture in every Sunday's liturgy with the hymns they sang together, the prayers they prayed, the sermons they heard, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
There was a reason why the Christians were referred to as the third race. They were not at all the furthest thing from exemplars of the dominant culture, but they weren't Jewish either, the culture from which they sprang. They were a people apart, strange to look upon for most people of the world of that day. Hard to understand because they obviously thought so differently and acted so differently than everyone else. This was a culture people had not seen before. Well, that's what we find here in chapter 20 of the book of Joshua, a piece of Israelite counterculture. Canaan may have been a type or image of heaven, but it was also the place where Israel was to live a life utterly different from the life of the people around her. It was precisely because the Canaanites represented such a vastly different culture that the Lord had required the Israelites to dispossess them of the land. That reason was stated over and over again in Numbers and in Deuteronomy and again in Joshua. Canaanite culture was toxic, but it was also attractive in three very important ways. It was radically sensual. It was undemanding. And it was conformist. Its worship was overtly sexual in tone and in practice. Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer could say the church ain't shucks to the circus. But nobody could say that in Canaan in the 14th century B.C. The circus had nothing on Canaanite worship. It also asked almost nothing of its worshipers. And it fit comfortably into the culture of the other peoples of the ancient Near East. A culture that panders to desire, that requires little in return, and does not require people to be different, is always going to be attractive to sinful human beings. Who can deny this in America today? In respect to the subject of our chapter, Canaanite culture was not concerned about justice. The powerful abused the powerless, and their right to do so was accepted as a simple fact of life. There were masters and there were slaves. The life of the poor was brutish and short. They lived for the benefit of their betters. You would not expect a culture that sacrificed its children to its own gods to be fastidious about protecting the rights of the accused. But everything was going to be fundamentally different in Israel. There are a number of countercultural convictions on display here. First, there is the sanctity of human life. It was always going to be a very big deal when someone died, and particularly when someone was killed in Israel. And the people of God were to be scrupulously careful to protect the sanctity of life by the way in which a killing was adjudged and punished. Both that of the man who had been killed, his life, and the man who had done the killing, his life. Both lives were sacred. Both men were to be treated with justice. In the case of unintended death, even then the fact that a life had been taken was to be treated in this most serious way. Even the man who had killed accidentally 
had to remain in the city of refuge. If he did not, he could be killed by the avenger of blood. Life made in God's image is always terribly sacred. And nothing so enforces the impression as the fact that even the accidental taking of life had long-term consequences. For such a man, the city of refuge was both an asylum and a prison until the death of the high priest. On the other hand, true justice weighs, distinguishes and weighs motivations and circumstances. All killings are not the same. And true justice makes the appropriate distinctions. When people are killed, no matter how they die, there is a natural desire on the part of friends and family members to want vengeance. But the Bible does not allow private vengeance in any circumstances to anyone. As the Apostle Paul, remember, famously summed up the position of Holy Scripture, citing Proverbs 20, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And even earlier than the book of Joshua, we read in Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord. The avenger of blood was therefore limited, thoroughly limited in what he was allowed to do. He could kill the killer, execute the killer, only if the man were found guilty of what we would today call first degree murder. Or if the man had violated the law of asylum and left the city of refuge. If he killed someone who had not done one or the other of those things, he would himself have violated the sanctity of life and would therefore be subject to be punished accordingly. The ancient world flowed with the blood of personal vengeance, but it was not to be found in Israel. When you stop to think about it, this is another of those features of Israelite life that was not only unprecedented in the ancient world, but would have been frankly preposterous to an inhabitant of Canaan in those days. So important were these principles that an entire system was designed to protect the rights of the accused, these so-called cities of refuge. So important were the protections that they offered that, they, that these cities were located within easy reach of any part of the land. These cities and the procedures set up for their use ensured that the guilty would be punished but punished justly with a punishment that fit the crime, the same principle that lies beneath the famous biblical axiom, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not two eyes for an eye, not two teeth for a tooth. And that those who were innocent of any actual crime would by the same system be protected from the avenger of blood, though confined within the city of refuge. So fundamental were these principles of justice for the life of the people of God that the Lord required, as we read in verse 9, that they applied to sojourners as well. People who lived in the land but were not Israelites. This is the way justice was supposed to be for everyone. It would be justice in Israel, whether you were an Israelite or not. It ought to be justice everywhere in the world. God's people couldn't secure justice for themselves without, while at the same time denying it to others. Now, all of this may seem quite obvious 
uncontroversial to the modern reader. It may seem actually an ingenious system to secure justice in a day before the existence of police departments and elaborate judicial systems, before anybody was hired to go find a criminal and bring him to justice. But this would not have seemed obvious or even proper to an ordinary citizen of the ancient Near East. Vengeance for them was a natural way of life. It continues to be so in many parts of the world. How many times have we heard recently of the honor killings that happen in the Muslim world? And what is terrorism, after all, but mass private vengeance? But here, 14 centuries before Christ, the common assumptions of that ancient world are swept away, and we see emerging before our eyes what so many people in the world today take entirely for granted, a Christian culture of justice. Of course, this was hardly the only way in which the life of the people of God was to be a counterculture. The forsaking of idols was utterly unprecedented in that world and would have been thought deeply perverse. Monotheism was unknown to the ancient peoples. There was but that there was but one living and true God, that he was himself a God of holiness and of love, was the utterly revolutionary idea from which every other principle and practice of biblical culture was to spring. The treatment of women, laws of marriage and divorce, the requirement to care for the poor, it goes on and on. The connection between faith and ethics that is everywhere fundamental to Israel's worldview was simply unheard of in the ancient world. The ancient gods didn't care how you lived your life, only that you gave them gifts. They were as selfish, as irresponsible, as bloodthirsty, as sensual as any human being ever had been. But Yahweh was uninterested in your gifts if you didn't live before him a life of obedience and love, which was what he was really interested in. No one had ever heard that from Baal or Asherah or Marduk or Atan. Now this biblical culture is another aspect of the story of the conquest of Canaan. The point was not simply to inherit some real estate. The point was to establish a way of life for the people of God that reflected Yahweh's holiness, goodness, and love that brought his blessing and favor down upon his people generation after generation that bore witness to the reality of the view of the world taught in the word of God. Now, since Pentecost, that biblical culture, that Christian culture reflecting the same convictions, the same concerns, and the same behaviors illustrated here in Joshua 20 has had to exist within other cultures. It exists in the faithful, the faithful Christian community, but not in the population at large. Never has. We understand that. It's our calling to be in the world, but not of the world. To be a counter-cultural. But alas, as happened again and again in Israel's history, the Christian culture has too often been absorbed into the prevailing culture, and has been compromised by it, so that the life of Christians and the life of people in the general culture come to be scarcely distinct from one another. 
It was precisely to avoid that outcome that the Lord had demanded that the land be cleared of its Canaanite population. The failure to do so was to prove fatal to Israel's spiritual life and to her testimony. And it is this same great question that is facing the American church in our time. Will she remain distinctly Christian, living a distinctly Christian life with distinctly Christian attitudes and behaviors and thoughts and ideas? Or will she become more and more American? I'm afraid there are not enough Christians who realize that the two things are not at all the same. But it is also essential to the world that the Christian culture remain vitally alive and visible before their eyes. You've heard the old canard that the Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. There are many through the years who've argued that Christianity and its interest in personal salvation is pie in the sky by and by. That is, it's a message about a future life but of little use to the life of this world and for this world. Pie in the sky by and by. To which my seminary professor, Laird Harris, used to retort, well, it's certainly better than no pie at all. But of course, what has been demonstrated often enough is that biblical culture lived out in a faithful biblical Christian community has been better for this world than any other influence, political, social, scientific, or religious. Virtually every principle that has exalted human life and contributed to human flourishing has been a gift to this world from the Christian faith. Even those who would never identify themselves as Christians borrow Christian concepts, fundamental convictions, when they argue for the right and the wrong of things, concepts, concepts such as the ones we find here, the sanctity of life, justice, human rights, private property, and so on. The very ideas we find in Joshua 20 and elsewhere, but which could never be found in the ancient Near Eastern world, and can't be found still today in much of our contemporary world. Do you have any idea how much the moral compass of the modern Western world, corrupted as it has become, is still a Christian moral compass. Fundamentally different from the moral compass of so many other peoples, groups, cultures, alive in this world today. The fact of the matter is that the Christian faith has always been as much about this world as about the world to come about life here as about life there. Joshua 20 is a summons to us all to live as witnesses in the world to those truths that lie at the foundation of reality because God is God and we have been made in his image. We've been granted life, you and I, every human being, to live in a certain way, the right way, the way God has taught us in the word that he, and the law that he has enshrined in our hearts and that he has written in his word. The very way, the very law, the very standard, according to which he will judge us all 
at the last day. We are to reflect his truth, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, and his love. That's our calling in the world. That was Israel's calling in the world. When we live that way, it's very good for us. It's very good for our children. But it's also very good for the world. You'll never help a human being by being less a Christian. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are our refuge. You are uh, the best place, the safest place for us to flee to. You are our defense. You are our strong, thick walls around us, protecting us from evil. We bless and thank you that you are that to us. Magnify yourself to us. We thank you too, Lord Jesus, that as our high priest, you died and released us to live in your world uh, the way in which you did. To live a holy, righteous, upright, cheerfully obeying your Father. Lord, that's what we want. And that's what we know we need help with. And so we pray you'd set apart this common loaf and wine. Fill us, strengthen us to live that way in this world. That others would see little Christs in us. This we pray in your name. Amen. It is in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of him that we do this. For in the night in which our Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the meal, our Savior took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul would later add, As often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
our final hymn on the flip side of the same paper, A Parting Hymn We Sing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.